Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, you're listening to Babbage, the podcast that gives you your weekly dose of stories from the world of science and technology. I'm Hal Hodson, technology correspondent for The Economist. This week, what the world must do to save the oceans. There's, you know, a path to making things better. Where else you can apply it, how else you can enforce it, much, much trickier. Also on the show, the researchers using light to control biology. Let's say they create a sugar when they're hit by green light, and then they produce something else when they're hit by red light. That means you're able to say, OK, folks, create this now. First, though, earlier this week, Britain was hit by the worst terrorist attack since the London bombings in 2005. It is now beyond doubt that the people of Manchester and of this country have fallen victim to a callous terrorist attack an attack that targeted some of the youngest people in our society with cold calculation. Even if attacks are planned or communicated about online, with the sheer volume of data created each day, it is difficult for authorities to wade through and prevent all such atrocities from happening. So how can technology help? Dr Robert Wesley is the president of the Terrorism Research Initiative, an international research collaboration. He's also the head of Kivu Technologies, a company that applies artificial intelligence to tackle these specific problems. He joins us now on the line from an international counter-terrorism conference in Vienna, Austria. Hello, Robert. Hello. AI is often attached to new things in a kind of marketing sense. So can you give me a sense of what AI you're actually doing and the value that it presents? So the type of artificial intelligence that we're employing is primarily uh, supervised machine learning at the moment, moving towards neural networks and unsupervised learning probably later on this year. And the types of problems that it addresses are are some of the most current issues that you see right now. For example, when a an individual goes dark online, what does that mean? How are authorities alerted to that behavioral change? Individuals have become more conscious that they might be monitored, and so they're not as explicit as they were in the past, about mentioning advocation to violence and things like that. Uh, so it's, it's becoming increasingly more difficult for governments, for security agencies to really early on in the process identify individuals that might be at risk. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to build a platform that allows authorities to be informed at the earliest possible stage that an individual might be on the pathway to radicalization. So they can employ technical or non-software means, such as social workers, community mentors, to address these threats before they actually materialize. It sounds like a big challenge. You mentioned going dark online as one possible signal. What are some other possible signals? We approach the problem as a network phenomenon. So the, the number of connections that these individuals have with known agitators, known promoters of violence, So if they become increasingly active in connecting with these individuals online, that's a potential indicator that they're searching for new information. Now, I mean, obviously it becomes harder to do this if 
the people you are interested in finding are not doing these things on open social platforms, but rather on end-to-end encrypted things like Signal, a encryption app similar to WhatsApp. Given that, and given that you run a business based upon finding signals like that, what is your opinion about the debate which instantly gets kicked off after any one of these incidents around government intervention in these communications? One of the ironies is that we're actually making our job much more difficult through policies such as suspending accounts or removing content. Not to say that it's not a valid approach or effective, but it, it makes our process of actually identifying individuals that we should be monitoring or we should make an intervention with that might be at risk, much more difficult. Let me just clarify that, Robert. Though, So what you're saying is that by censoring material that is considered insightful to violence or hateful on large platforms like YouTube or Facebook or Twitter, that actually makes the job of trying to catch these people before they do anything more difficult. Yes. I mean, I don't take a position of whether or not it's good overall. But at the same time, it does make our our jobs much more difficult. And one of the things that we see, I mean, I've been looking at online propaganda since the Second Chechen War. Actually, a lot of the propaganda was quite similar back then. And it's become increasingly more difficult for me as a long-term expert to identify individuals that I might be focusing on. So you can imagine the pressures junior analysts have. In terms of moving to more protected channels such as Telegram or Signal, I mean, we can see that... That is happening to a certain degree, especially with the dissemination of information. We also see this activity happening on more open platforms such as Twitter. So whereas the official accounts have moved away, the non-official accounts are still very active. So in a way, then, there's two different things that we're talking about here. One is this prevention of radicalization effort that involves data and analytics online. And then there's another rather separate debate, which is we need to see into the end-to-end encrypted spaces in order to catch people in the act before they do it, which is almost, seems a very different discussion to me after talking to you. Yeah, that, that is a different discussion. And in, I mean, it's more of a, a political discussion rather than an actual sort of technical discussion. What, what policy advice would you give? I would advocate for more interoperability between the various organizations within government responsible for this. And, and technology can actually provide better coordination and better communication among agencies because they can see what the value would actually be if they suspended an account online. They can understand what the resilient aspects of that network would be, whether it's worth taking that individual off or it's better to actually investigate them. Dr. Robert Wesley, thank you very much. My pleasure. Next, oceans cover a lot of the planet. Most of it, in fact. But even though that's the case, we aren't really doing that much to keep them healthy. The situation is threatening not only fish stocks, but human welfare too. Miranda Johnson, our environment correspondent, joins me now to tell us more. So just how big is the ocean anyway? If you poured all this salty water that's in the ocean over America, a column of liquid would rise 132 kilometres into the sky. So it is massive. And in this water live fish. And your piece in the paper this week talks about threats to them. What, What are those threats? In the short term, it's very much an issue which I'm sure people have heard of, which is overfishing is stressing stocks massively. Patches of recovery in certain parts of uh, the Atlantic cod species, for example, are doing much better now they've been left alone for a while. But overall, the picture is pretty grim. 
if you look at stats from the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, about 10% of fish stocks back in the 1970s were fish beyond sustainable limits, fish beyond a point where you could continue catching them for years and years, future generations. But now we're at a point where about 32% of fish are caught at an unsustainable level. Is there a sliver of hope in the cod bounce back at all? I think it shows us that there are certain policies we can implement which help very particular issues, i.e. here fishing. And it's helpful insofar as we know that there is something you can do and also you can measure the effects of those kind of closures. We know that you start off with a certain level of cod and if you leave them alone, you get more. So in that way, it does show that there's you know, a path to making things better. Where else you can apply it, how else you can enforce it, establishing marine protected areas that specifically have no-take zones, much, much trickier. You say in your piece that one of the problems with the ocean is that we can't see into it. It's not very easy to inspect. But are there technologies that are starting to help us? Yes. And some of the things we're getting better at looking into and being able to view concern moments where humans and the ocean interact directly. Tiny satellites mean that we can track certain large fishing vessels through data that they transmit more easily and more cheaply than we used to be able to in the past. There are other problems facing the ocean, such as warming and changing chemistry, that we also increasingly know more and more about. We can send out uh, sailing drones into the ocean for months at a time quite cheaply as well, or certainly more cheaply than sending out a manned vessel. But what to do about those larger looming problems of changing temperature and changing chemistry That's much harder to say. Right. And so we can measure it, but how to fix it is a bigger question. The UN is meeting in the next month to discuss ways to address this. Uh, What what are the chances that some kind of Paris-like agreement can be reached to save this wet commons in the same way that the uh, atmosphere has been addressed? So fortunately, the Paris Agreement, because it's trying to limit emissions, will eventually help limit changes in the ocean. But a kind of global ocean agreement is something that probably won't come out of this New York meeting. They're going to be discussing one of the sustainable development goals, which relates to the ocean. It's very broad. It wants to promote the sustainable use of resources from the sea. But ultimately, there are different entities and different laws that govern the ocean. It's complicated. And that kind of patchwork of governance is improving, but it's going to be incredibly difficult ever to reach any kind of overarching agreement. There are talks underway at the moment, sort of discussions about discussions on a new kind of entity that would protect biodiversity on the high seas, areas beyond national jurisdictions. But it it's hard to say what exactly will come out of that at this point in time. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Miranda. Finally, synthetic biology is allowing researchers to program cells in all manner of ways to change what they produce. Up until now, this has mostly been done using chemical signals. But researchers have turned to another of nature's tools to do so, light. Science correspondent Matt Kaplan joins us now on the line to discuss. Hello, Matt. Hey, Hal. How's it going? Now, using light to control biological processes isn't a new technique, is it? 
No. In fact, the lab that's doing this new work, led by Christopher Voigt at MIT, developed the concept of controlling cells with light and darkness back in 2004. And the benefit here is pretty serious, because if you want to switch on a chemical signal in a bacteria that you've harnessed to create some sort of compound, normally you have to send in a chemical signal into the vat of bacteria to trigger them to behave in a certain way. And if you've got like a million liters of bacteria, you have to circulate that chemical compound to all of them to get them to switch on and start producing whatever you want them to produce. So that's expensive and time-consuming. And the notion was, well, if we could get them to be light-sensitive, you could hit them with a pulse of light, and that would be their on switch. And that's what they did in 2004, but it was all very simple. It was either they're on or they're off, because it was light and darkness. So the same team thought, what if we could get them to respond to color? Then we could give them more complex signals. So what did they use it for specifically in this case? They're taking photoreceptors, which are normally found in plants, and plants use these little little pieces of cellular machinery to determine what color the light is in the world around them. And that might not sound very important, but if you're a plant trying to time your pollination or flowering, you want to know how long the day is. And the way you measure the day length is by detecting when red light appears at dusk. And so these natural bits of cellular machinery exist out there, and they've scavenged them from plants and stuck them into bacteria so that the bacteria which are producing chemical compounds are able to take that color sensitivity and be switched on by it. And so what's the point of doing this? Like, what would you use color-sensitive bacteria for? If you want to, for example, create a, a sweetener or a complex chemical compound, To date, that's been impossible because even if you had bacteria that were light sensitive, all you could do would be send them one signal, which is switch on or switch off. But if you want to create something complicated, like any chemistry experiment, that takes steps. And if you have bacterium that's programmed to produce multiple compounds with different stimuli, that's great, but you need to be able to tell them to do it at specific times and do it quickly. And with chemicals in the stew, you wouldn't be able to do it quick enough. So by sending light rays into a vat of bacteria that can create multiple chemical compounds, let's say they create a sugar when they're hit by green light, and then they produce something else when they're hit by red light, that means you're able to say, okay, folks, create this now. And with kind of strobed colored lighting, you can get the bacteria to produce complex chemical compounds in their soup, and those compounds interact and create what you want them to create. Okay, so they used E. coli bacteria to do this, right? And E. coli, we know them because they're, they're inside our gut. And there's, there's not so much light down there. Are, are they thinking of putting these color-sensitive bacteria in the human gut? Is there an application in there? The potential to stick E. coli bacteria inside your body and have them respond to light and produce compounds in response to that light is a really cool idea, but I think we're a ways off from that. But you could stick those bacteria into some area of your body that needs the production of a chemical compound, like a medicine. And if you could shoot them with a laser light that travels through the skin, that could activate them to produce what you want locally, like a chemotherapy drug, perhaps. And then when they've produced enough of it, you hit them again with a color of light that tells them, okay, that's enough, switch it off. And that might reduce the collateral damage that you would create from chemotherapy production. But I mean, that's that's a long way off. Right. So hypothetically, light shows in your belly, but not there yet. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Matt Kaplan, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure, Hal. You take care. That's all for this episode of Babbage. 
Please take a moment to rate it through your favorite podcast app or on iTunes. If you have any thoughts on any of the content in this week's show, you can email us at radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.